Good morning, church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I had the great and wonderful privilege to help lead this team to the Czech Republic this year. Um, we had a wonderful time exploring Beskidi Mountain Academy, experiencing the teachings of our mission partner, Paul, and getting, to, getting into many great conversations with many great students. Um, what you didn't get to see from this video is what it was that Paul was teaching. You didn't get to see or you weren't a privy uh, party to the late night discussions that I and other of our students had with other students. And you did not get to see who made it to the top of that mountain first. <laughs> I'll give you a hint, it wasn't me. But if you want to find out any of this information or more, our team is going to be hanging out in the lobby after church. So please stick around, hang out with us, and ask some questions. I'm, I'm sure our team would love to share what they did. For now, uh, let's pray together before we get into the word. Heavenly Father, you're a good God and you are a great God. We praise you for your great mercy which you shower upon us. Help, Lord, to keep our hearts clean that we may love you more perfectly and magnify your holy name. We pray for your glory to be revealed however you will it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start today's message with a movie that I am not uh, condoning for, <laughs> or suggesting that you watch, but um, you may have seen this movie called Bruce Almighty. It's a movie in which the actor Jim Carrey is granted all the powers of God, but he soon realizes that it's a pretty difficult task, and one of his difficulties is answering prayer. Overwhelmed by the sheer number of requests, he starts finding out ways to get the voices out of his head and into a more organized fashion. He ends up deciding that a computer system might organize the files well. You see him typing away on the computer there. So the millions and millions and millions of prayers begin to roll into his inbox to the chime of, you've got mail. And Bruce realizes that he can't type fast enough to keep up with the requests for new cars, for a better relationship, for a lotto ticket. So he comes up with a solution. My tech fans will be able to help me out. What does control or command A do? Select all, that's right. So what does he do? He selects all and he hits yes. Millions and millions and millions of yeses. So there you go. Everyone should be happy, right? Done deal. What a great world to live in where everybody gets exactly what they pray for. According to this story, that would amount to every lotto winner just in this city receiving $17. As you can imagine, the city is overrun with protesters and mobs shortly thereafter. But it's an interesting commentary about our prayer life, the things that we ask for, and the way that God gives us what we ask for, or in some cases doesn't give us what we ask for. We'll see parallels to these questions and more in our text today, asking how should we pray and how will God answer? So let's turn to our text in Luke chapter 18. If you're using the church Bible, that will be in page 930. 
And when we read our text today, we'll discover that the parable's focus is first about prayer and then about the persistence one might have in prayer, followed by a promise given to us about our prayer. Starting in verse 1. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and to not give up. Now this is one of the few, I think it might be the only parable, where the reason for the parable is given right off the bat. Often the parable is explained after the fact, or it's left for those to decipher who have ears to hear. But not so in this parable. He told them a parable on what? On the need for them to pray always and to not give up. To some, this might come to you as a shock. Isn't prayer, after all, just a simple conversation with God? Why should we need a special teaching from Jesus on prayer? Well, lest we think that prayer is that easy, I want to go through an activity with you. Respond after I speak with what you think should come next. Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Great. You all seem to know the Lord's prayer. A prayer taught to the disciples by Jesus after the only recorded request made by the disciples for a teaching from the God of the universe. The only time the disciples ever asked for a teaching was in prayer. Lord, how, teach us how to pray. It's recorded in Luke 11, if you want to find it and, and look at that yourself later. And the, and the disciples are asking Jesus for training. Of all the things that they could have asked for, this is what they requested. They didn't ask for instructions on how to share the gospel. They didn't ask for instructions on how to spread the kingdom of God, how to heal the sick, how to deal with people who have leprosy, or even how to cast out demons. John Anwucheka, in his book on prayer, says, none of the disciples say, but Jesus, I was asleep the day that you went over. How much spit to use in the mud to heal a blind man? Or better yet, what to do when I find a blind man who was born blind versus a, a blind man who became blind in his life? No, they usually take the command from Jesus and they run with it. But not so with prayer. They ask him to teach. Obviously, the disciples thought prayer was a significant enough challenge that they needed a little bit of extra training. And then what happens? They get this extra training so they should be prayer warriors, right? Skilled in the task. But they're presented with an opportunity to pray over Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they give in to sleep not once but twice. If praying is difficult, difficult enough for asking of instruction, praying with persistence must be harder. And we haven't even begun to discuss some of the possible obstacles that can come in between us and our communication with God. Some people find that their prayer life suffers when times are good. Why should I go to God when everything around me seems to be going so well, right? 
I'm financially stable. My family is healthy. Maybe I got that promotion I've been desiring for some time. For some, when things go well, their relationship with God grows distant. Others find that their prayer life suffers when times go bad. Why go to God when he seems distant or aloof, right? If God is good and he is powerful, why would he allow all this suffering in my life? Maybe you've experienced some of this suffering in your life. Maybe you've experienced a death in the family or your relationship with your child is not what you expected or hoped it would be. Maybe you've spent years with a partner only to feel unknown. Or maybe you're wondering why God hasn't given you a partner when you've been searching so hard. It won't take much time for you to meet someone across the aisle and hear just how difficult it can be to courageously continue to earnestly seek God's guidance and appeal to his action when you don't see answers coming. This seems to be, at least in part, the exact situation that Jesus has in mind with this parable, as he encourages to always pray and to not give up. Because this story is about a woman who, at least for a time, keeps pestering this judge with her requests being unanswered. Starting in verse 2, we see some of her persistence. Starting in verse 2, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. adversary. For a while he was unwilling but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. This widow has a lot going against her in this situation. First, her position in society in an age where social services were almost exclusively dependent on goodwill, widows, orphans, and the sick were often exposed to less than helpful social situations. In ancient Israel, a woman's link to the greater community would have been a man in the family, a father for a daughter, a husband for a wife, in the case of a widow, perhaps a son. In this case, it seems like this widow has no one defending her. The widow has no social clout, so to speak, to influence or pull her weight with the judge. And adding to her already difficult situation, this widow must plead her case to a judge that seems to lack any ethical or moral compass, nor does he seem empathetic to the cries of those around him. In his own words, he says, even though I don't fear God or respect people. You see that in verse 4? It's not like we would have needed him to confess this in order to see that it was true, based on his interactions in this text. And we see time and time again in the Old Testament a repeated championing of the cause of widows, among others, and, and, the, and the scripture emphatically denounces those who oppress them. 
So why, then, if this man in our text doesn't fear God or respect people, does he relent in verse 5? It's not out of the kindness of his heart or a change of heart, but out of the selfishness in his heart. Not dissimilar to the selfishness of Jim Carrey in Bruce Almighty selecting all and hitting yes, this judge simply can't be bothered with the overwhelming nature of this woman's pursuit of justice. He's moved uh, solely out of self-interest. This judge wouldn't be swayed if it was an election year, if the polls were showing that people were responding favorably to social justice. Remember, he doesn't respect people. No, he's simply annoyed into submission. Now, we don't know how long this woman was persisting, but you could imagine that it was difficult, couldn't you, to keep coming to this judge who's ignoring her request? Like, when I am driving up to the DMV, I'm annoyed like that by a long line, and I turn away. I can't be bothered to wait on something that long. My level of persistence is often weak. But this widow's persistence seems to be strong. And her persistence is intriguing to me because the phrase that is translated in the CSB as so that she doesn't wear me out, it has two common meanings. Literally, it means to strike under the eye or to give a black eye. And one possible meaning of this phrase would have been a common metaphor of the time, meaning something like to make them look bad or to give them a bad reputation. It's similar how you might say, oh, I was caught with my pants down, when really what you meant is you felt exposed or you felt embarrassed. But this judge doesn't seem to care about public opinion, and this woman has little influence in her social circles, so it's not likely that he was forced into submission by embarrassment. He doesn't care. It's probably more like the sentiment of a parent at the end of a long day, and they're just like, man, that child is going to be the end of me. Though we may feel that way sometimes about our children, and we want to protect our, uh, or we want to project, rather, our parental ineptitudes on God, do you believe, really, that God ever feels that way about us? Does God ever grow weary of his children? As if we could ever wear down the God of the universe? We can't possibly blacken his face or give him a black eye to ruin his reputation. Because God isn't like this judge. We can be um, happy that this parable doesn't end with a message like, if you're persistent enough to wear down God, you might just pester him enough, just maybe enough to get what you asked for. How often, Lord, do I think before I pray, am I bothering you today? Is this too little of an ask? Is this too big? Should I bother the maker of the universe with my requests? Alas, at least we can say thank you, Lord, for, for being kind and compassionate and slow to anger. Thank you for being patient and wanting a relationship with me. 
and help me to be persistent in my approach. But persistence can be hard when the results hang in the balance. When you want with all of your heart for God to answer the longings of your heart. And many of you might be in a time of persistence right now, waiting for your cries to be heard. If I asked you, when you had prayed the hardest, perhaps maybe you prayed the most earnest prayers of your life, during what time? Would there be a common theme in the answers? I'm willing to bet that most of us say our most deep-felt and earnest prayers come from a time when we experienced trouble. I don't mean a simple trouble like, ah, I did something wrong and now I'm in trouble. Although that could be the case. I mean trouble in the general sense, like you're in the middle of something awful in your life. This could be a potential problem for us in the North Shore. Because life here typically is safe. We do our best to make our life trouble-free, don't we? And if we're so protected that we may never feel the sense of trouble, we might be in a greater sense of trouble. Crime rates are low here. You can get insurance for anything. Your finance and work is typically secure. You know, in my missions around the world, I've prayed with people who have homes that have fallen down on them because it rained too much that day. I've talked with mothers who have more children in heaven than on earth. And though they have faced much trouble in their life, I can tell you that their prayer life is strong and persistent. Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, answering God, the Psalms as a tool for prayer says this. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. Those who don't know they're in trouble are often in the worst trouble. Prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and know it, and who believe or hope that God can get them out. And Isaac Singer once said, I pray when I'm in trouble, and I'm in trouble all the time. So I pray all the time. The recipe for obeying St. Paul's pray without ceasing or persistent prayer is not a strict regimen, but a watchful recognition for the trouble that we are in. This is because when we forget to come to God, we forget that in the cosmic sense you and I are in very real danger. It could be that the calamity of the world happening around us reminds us of the frail nature of our lives and calls us to draw on something or better yet, someone greater than ourselves. Twice in the last decade, I have experienced a deep depression. And both times, it took months for me to recover from that and to feel like myself again. And both times, something amazing happened. My devotion to scripture and my devotion to prayer deepened significantly. It's not that I would wish those moments on anyone, but my spiritual roots grew deeper because I recognized the trouble I was in and because I recognized the great need that I had for God. 
Now, there's many times that we see people crying out to God in the Bible. We see Jacob and Esau, Hannah in her barrenness, the Israelites, David the warrior king, even Jesus expected his followers to pray for him in the garden. And we often see Jesus going off by himself to do what? To pray. But just because we see lots of great examples of prayer and just because we pray ourselves doesn't mean that we have a formulaic approach to twist God's arm into answering us. As if we can have a strategy forcing God to do what we want. Tim Keller, many of you know, recently passed away. And he had passed from pancreatic cancer. And in the interview that he had with Premier just months before he had passed, he, um, he had spoken to them on his prayer life. In 2020 is when this happened, um, not the interview, the interview was more recent. But in 2020, thousands of people were praying because of this diagnosis. Thousands of people praying for this pastor. And Keller himself was praying. And Keller was asked about his prayer life, about his relationship with God. And he said that he prayed for healing twice daily. I don't know if that's less persistent as the widow from our story. I don't know if that's equally persistent, more persistent. Does it exceed it? I don't know. But what he says is that at the end, he and his wife would have never wanted to go back to the way their prayer life was before he had cancer. He said that his prayer life became deeper. It became more consistent. And he grew in his understanding of God. Credder, Keller credits, that's Credder apparently. <laughs> Keller credits cancer and more specifically facing his own mortality as a catalyst that transformed his prayer life. It changed the way that he looks at God and it changed everything in his life because he had realized that his time was suddenly limited. He realized what it meant to feel mortal. He jokingly said at 69 they never felt old and that they would never get old. And of course, you get older. And he learned to number his days and to gain a heart of wisdom, as the psalm says. He learned to really commit to the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Keller said in the end, God can do it if he wants He doesn't have to. He grew in peace, knowing that God knows, and that's enough. But understanding that doesn't just happen upon us. That kind of peace doesn't just happen upon you. It comes with years and years of experience. If, God, if God's ways are always better, we can earnestly seek his will because you've seen it in your life that God's will is better. I can look back many times in my own life and say, wow, I can see what you were doing back there. But at the time, I said, wow, this is awful. This sucks. <laughs> but with hindsight, we can see that his ways are often better. I can look back and say, I see what you did there. It doesn't mean that those times aren't tough, but it does mean that I can grow in my ability to trust in his plan, 
even when I don't get the Bruce Almighty control all yes that I'm hoping for. But if I'm not guaranteed a yes, what am I guaranteed? Our text has a promise for us. We begin reading this promise in verse 6. Then the Lord said, look. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus contrasts here what we heard about the unjust judge and God. Look at what this guy did. Won't God do it better? If this judge who doesn't fear God or respect man, and he eventually gives justice, won't God give justice all the more? God is like the judge in this parable in that he hears the plea of his children and he does vindicate them, but unlike the judge from this parable, he's not reluctant to do so. Jesus is saying if this lazy and immoral judge finally does the right thing, how much more so will God, who's compassionate and loving, render his justice to his children? So why then are we often left wanting more? Like, I know this to be true in my heart of hearts. I know that God wants justice in my life. So why do I not feel resolve in my soul all the time? Anyone have a prayer that is currently going unanswered? Anyone have a want for justice to be served in their life or in the life of someone around them? You may have noticed it, but if we look back at our passage as a whole. What kind of prayers are we talking about? It's certainly not prayers for lotto tickets and cars, although those are fine, I guess. But this passage says that there was a judge, and there was a widow saying, give me justice. And later he said, I will give her justice. Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will God not grant justice? He will swiftly grant them justice. Unlike the Bruce Almighty granting every request that is asked of him and frantically typing, our God is not hurried or rushed or overwhelmed, and he is not doling out simple yeses to everything that is requested. He is doling out justice, and not your or my understanding of justice, but true justice. So a question might be on the mind of many of us today. And it was certainly vocalized by many opponents of the gospel, and it is this. If God is a God of justice, and he's so eagerly willing to grant justice out to his elect who cry out for it, why is there so much injustice in the world? It's a question that has been asked for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's a question that many of us have or will probably wrestle with. If God is good and all-powerful, why does evil exist? Well, the short answer to that is that there has been a remedy for injustice. 
But the same people that don't believe or see God to be all-powerful or all-loving also don't like his solution for the injustices of the world. You see, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of the injustices of the world were put on him as he bore them on the cross. He's the only one who has ever and could ever live a perfect life, thus deserving no punishment, deserving of no judgment, and yet received all of our judgment. Do you see how remarkable this is? In our parable today, we have a widow crying out for the injustice to this complacent judge who eventually and begrudgingly grants her justice. And our great judge, Jesus Christ, not only grants justice, but does so by taking on the personal offenses of everyone to himself. He takes the guilty party's punishment, although he had no guilt. If this were a courtroom, Jesus would be sitting on the throne, gavel in hand, and would give out the plea to the widow and say, you're right, that is injustice, and he is guilty. And guess what? So are you. You're both guilty. He'd bang the gavel, and then he'd walk down, and he'd handcuff himself. That'd make for a pretty odd end to a Hollywood blockbuster, wouldn't it? Your Honor, the judge finds the defendant guilty on all charges, and then the judge gets taken to jail. But that's the mercy and compassion of our generous judge. The irony of our parable today is that the judge is called unjust for not acting for the justice which the widow has earned and deserves to be served. But our ultimate judge took on the greatest injustice of the world, the greatest injustice that we'll ever know, and he took it onto himself when he approached the cross. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, says it like this. In Jesus Christ, God identified not only with the poor, but also with those who are denied justice. Why? Because our God can't help but act in accordance with his will, and with his nature. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But he didn't leave it as a teaching. He demonstrated that teaching in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 22, you would hear Jesus say, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me, but nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. A God like this is nothing like the God or the judge that this widow is dealing with. So won't he answer the prayers of those who cry out to him? Yes, he will. And our passage tells us how he will do so because it comes on the heels of Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 17 about his second coming. And it ends with a question in regards to his second coming. It would be appropriate then for us to view this encouragement that we find in verse 1, to pray always and not give up in the context, in the lens of justice coming when Jesus returns. 
it's a not so popular topic in today's culture, hell. But hell is necessary if there's to be justice, isn't there? Like the same people that wonder why a good God isn't doing anything to prevent all of the evil of the, of the day also wonder, well, does there have to be a hell? Can't everyone make it into heaven? Not doling out a control command, yes, to everyone, but granting justice for all those who come to serve him means there's a distinction. In actuality, the difficult doesn't lie in the understanding of whether or not God is good or whether or not there will one day be justice. The difficulty lies in whether or not we will make the decision in our hearts to bow down to Christ as king. This text provides evidence that this is what Jesus thought too because he ends with a rhetorical question. When the son of man comes, comes, will he find faith on earth? Almost as if he expected our question, where is God? Why, why is there all this evil? Jesus flips the script and he says, well, where are my faithful followers? Where are those with faith? A greater question than if or when the second company coming will happen because as you may know, Jesus likes the word soon, not very specific. A better question than that is, are you prepared for it? Faith, like the persistent faith of the widow seeking justice. Do you have a faith like that? Persistently seeking his justice, although you haven't yet seen it. Because the son of man is looking for those who come and continue to believe in him despite the weight. We are like people invited into this cosmic lawsuit, waiting for the verdict. But the good news is that the verdict, although it's guilty, already had the punishment doled out. And if you've ever felt like this widow who has no one to advocate for herself, do you realize that Jesus defends those who trust in him? Jesus didn't just care for those who were denied justice, but he became like them. And more than that, he was denied cosmic justice, although he was the only one deserving of justice. And because he did not get what was due to him, but was what was due to us, we can demonstrate the kind of faith that persists in our prayer life while we wait for the justice of God. So let's be those types of people that have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a prayer life that is faithful and persistent while we wait. Will you bow your heads as I pray? Heavenly Father, you are a glorious God and you are deep in compassion and glory. Your riches are overwhelming and honestly, we don't even deserve to be in your presence or speaking to you right now but you are also a God that desires to be near. You're a God that made a way for us to be close to you even though we don't deserve it. And you're not a God that grows weary, but you defend us. So help us, Lord, as we try our best to follow you faithfully, to 
to have hearts that are earnestly seeking you and to be persistent in our prayer because you're a God that loves his children. In Jesus' name, amen.